Normally, you wouldn't think of the word curse as a biblical word. When you think of the word curse, you might think of the curse of Oak Island, or you might think of a witch kind of casting a curse on someone, or you might think of a bad word that you said. Someone said, I don't want, I don't appreciate using curse words, or you may think of generational curses, which by the way, are not biblical. Sometimes I hear Christians talking about generational curses, you know, that my family struggles with ABC and it's a generational curse and we're trying to break the generational curse. Show me that in the Bible. Each man stands as one before God. You will give an account for your sins. You don't have to apologize for what your great granddaddy did. You're not hexed or cursed by him. You will stand before an audience of one, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and give an account for your life. That aside, again, we don't normally expect to hear the word curse in church, but did you know that God will curse you if you distort the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's true. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, which is going to be part of our preaching passage today, God says through Paul to the churches in Galatia, but even if we, meaning an apostle, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The Greek word there is anathema. The English word is anathema. We didn't really translate it, we just transliterated it. But anathema is, is a pretty strong word. It means let him be eternally damned. Let him become unredeemable. Let him be given up to a divine curse. If you mess with the gospel, God pronounces an anathema on you. And as such, we should probably make sure we're getting the gospel right. That we actually understand it and we're not miscommunicating it or half preaching it at the risk of offending others. So getting the gospel right is of critical importance. And Galatians is a book that serves that purpose. Now, when it comes to the gospel, it's not just getting it right between your ears, in your headspace, or with your mouth. Because Galatians has passages like Galatians 5 in it, which is all about the fruit of the Spirit, which is a necessary outflow of a truly transformed life. So when we talk about getting the gospel right, we're not just talking about getting it right intellectually, although we want to get it right intellectually, but it's also appropriating it, putting it into practice, applying it. We need to get the gospel right up here, and we also need to get the gospel right in terms of the way we interact with others and with the world around us. That includes everything from the most basic starting point of the gospel, which is the lordship of Jesus Christ over creation. If he's not Lord, why are you surrendering to him? If he's not Lord, well, how is it possible that he conquered sin, Satan, and hell? He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Something as basic as the absolute lordship of Christ is believed between the ears by pretty much every Christian I've ever met. But what have we seen in the last couple of years? Very few per capita actually willing to apply it, to live it out, to say, no, Jesus Christ is the Lord of you, Mr. Prime Minister, Mr. Premier, Mr. Official. How do we know that? Because we have Revelation 1.5, among other passages, which declares that Christ is, quote, the ruler of kings on earth. Oh, I thought he was just king in heaven. No, no. He's king now. He is the king of kings and lord of lords on earth in this world. Christ is every one's lord and king. It's just that very few acknowledge it, and among those that acknowledge it, many don't practice it. So this is fundamental to the gospel. There's, there's other elements to the gospel, but the lordship of Jesus Christ, I'm giving this as an illustration to point out that it's not enough to just know the gospel, to affirm it, to say, yeah, let's put that in our creeds and doctrinal statements, but to live it out in space and time. So how can we ensure that we're getting the full gospel of Jesus Christ right? Well, it starts by remembering the source. We need to make sure we get the source right. So where do we go if we want to discover and continue to remind ourselves of the true gospel? Well, we need to go to the Bible because we are all mere messengers of the gospel. We don't manufacture it. We don't make it up. It doesn't have a yearly upgrade to it. You can't add to it, subtract to it. The gospel is set in stone in the word of God. So everyone 
who wants to understand and stay true to the gospel has to spend some time in what we call the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, the Word of God. So make sure that you're studying the scriptures even beyond Galatians for the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I would imagine that everyone here knows what an ambassador is. An ambassador is essentially an envoy, a diplomat that is sent by one kingdom or nation to another kingdom or nation to represent their will and purposes in economic trade or warfare, whatever it might be. The earliest ambassadors that we know of were from ancient Greece, and they were sent, Greece, of course, was a a collection of city-states. It was one country, but it's a collection of city-states. They had little kings here and there and everywhere. And every several years, they would have the Olympics. So in order to communicate from one city-state to the next, the first diplomats or envoys or ambassadors, if you will, would go and they'd be arranging for the Olympic Games, making all the arrangements for that. And then in the age of modern diplomacy, Canada has all kinds of ambassadors, for example, in various countries around the world, and there's an embassy there, and it's sovereign soil, and they're not taxed, and they're representatives of the country they came from. And they get involved in all the economic and political negotiations between countries. Well, we, likewise, are ambassadors for Christ. That's essentially our job description. We're ambassadors for Christ. Redeemed from our own sin, saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now we go out into the world and we represent. Remember the opening chapters of Genesis that talked about stewardship? We're stewards, we're ambassadors, or we have dominion, I should say, over creation. It's the same idea. We, it's not our world, it's God's world, but we go out and tend it, we represent it, we cultivate it, we, we speak his truth into culture, and we call people to repent, and so forth. Now, you would be a really bad ambassador if you disobeyed the monarch or sovereign that sent you, or you changed the message or made it up. I mean, you'd probably be charged with treason or something like that and locked up or in some countries even put to death. Well, we are ambassadors for Christ and we don't concoct the gospel in our own head and we don't preach half of it and leave the other half out because we're concerned about offending the person we're delivering it to. We speak on behalf of our king. By the way, you always know when a person isn't doing that when they're falling into works-oriented gospels. So we are, we are about good works. We believe in good works. They're a necessary and inevitable outflow of true conversion. Okay, you hear that? necessary and inevitable outflow of true conversion. But they come after conversion. They don't lead to. You don't get brownie points for the good stuff you do. Uh, The prophet Isaiah said, even the good works you do are like filthy rags if they're not motivated by uh, conversion. So there's many people that, for example, aren't Christians, but they donate to charity. And they're like, hey, I just donated to charity. Why are you telling me? Well, I guess I want a little bit of a, I want some favors. I want some recognition. Could you put my name on a building? Like it's a good deed, but it's not purely motivated by benevolence. It's like people do things like this to look good, to get the applause of men. So good, good deeds, think about this. The good deeds that we do outside of Christ converting us are in the eyes of God, filthy rags. That's the good stuff. Imagine the bad stuff. So Paul understood this. So this is what Paul said in Galatians 1, 1 and following. Paul, an apostle. The word apostle is another word transliterated from Greek. The full word is apostolos. Just basically that with an OS on the end. If you know Greek, that's that's what makes a... um, a noun masculine and singular. So it it was a word used in the Greek world before it wound up in scripture. It it essentially means literally sent one. So you could be a postman, you're the sent one, you're you're delivering mail, you're an apostle, apostolos or an apostoloi. So you'd send out, you'd send out apostles. So this word was brought out of the broader common language of the of the uh, Greco-Roman world. And it became the title for an office, like a a status, a role within the church. We'll we'll talk about it a little bit more. So Paul's one of them. Now the question is, who affirmed his apostleship? Who 
granted him his apostleship. So first I should say who granted it, and secondly, who affirmed it. Men? Did he go through some ordination process like you would if you're an elder? No. It is not from men, he said, nor through man. It's not sourced in man, and it's not in any way, shape, or form affirmed through the agency of other men. Well, then where does it come? But through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, because that's core to the gospel, the resurrection, conquering death, sin, hell. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So this letter, if you've read Corinthians, first or second Corinthians, you'll notice that there's a letter written to a church. There are occasional documents to deal with a specific issue in that church in the first century. Is it a blessing to us? Absolutely. But it's a specific letter the letter to the Ephesian church, the letter to the Philippian church, one man writing to one church, a time-sensitive document to address certain situations. This is more of a general epistle because it's written to a bunch of churches in a whole region, which means the message is going to be broader than what you would expect in a letter written to one specific church because their situation was unique. So this is why this, this book is helpful because it gives us a pretty good overview of the gospel and warns us when we're fudging it or uh, encourages us to put it into, into play, into practice. So this is the, the introductory verses of the epistle to the Galatian churches. Now, let's talk a little bit more about this word apostle. So in the life of the church, like for ours, for example, we have two offices that we recognize. We have elders, which is an office reserved for qualified men who are in control of their homes, who are sober-minded, who have good reputation in the community, who know the word of God and who can instruct people in the word of God. And then we have deacons. And in our church, we also have deaconesses because in Romans 16:1, Phoebe's called a diaconai, a deaconess. And this is a service role. Pretty much all the qualifications are the same except deacons don't have to be able to teach. They have to know the word, but they don't have to be able to teach and instruct. And their role is much more service-oriented. So oversight versus service-oriented. And the means of becoming a deacon or an elder in the church is we watch you. We observe your marriage. We observe your family. We observe your reputation. We observe how people look to you or don't look to you for guidance. We observe your knowledge of scripture, your capacity to teach. And it's an organic thing, but sometimes we'll tap someone on the shoulder and we say, hey, we see something in you. Maybe the Lord's calling you to serve in this particular office. And there's conversations and processes we go through. And then at some point we lay hands on or we formally install a person to an office. Not with apostles. Apostles weren't ordained by the church. They weren't affirmed by the church. This was a unique office that was given directly by God. The apostles all saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ and were given gifts to do things like raise the dead. Kind of impressive. Revelate, write the books of the Bible. If I came to you today and said, hey, I've had a couple people over the years say, Aaron, I think you have apostolic gifts. What do you mean by that? Well, you tend to influence other pastors. That's just because I've been doing this for a long time. I'm not an apostle. But what if I said, you know, I'm an apostle, so I'm just kind of working on a new epistle for you, the epistle of Aaron. It's going to be really good. You'd be like, cult leader, you know, something's going on here, right? Because I, I'm not an apostle. The apostle, the apostle, there's no doctrine of apostleship. It is a direct appointment by God. Look, it says, it's not from men nor through men. And then it doesn't leave you hanging. It says where it is from and through, Christ, God the Father. A very significant office in the life of the church. And when we teach and preach, we don't make up our own stuff. It's not like, well, Paul got to do it. Why can't I? Well, Peter got to do it, and he kind of messed up a little bit at the foot of the cross. So why, why can't I? We preach what God delivered to them. We preach and teach. This is why we have what we call a closed canon of scripture. There's 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. We're not adding books and we haven't done for 2,000 years. This is a closed canon, meaning a closed rule. 
This is the Bible. This is all you need to deal with all matters of faith and practice. And yet, for whatever reason, over the centuries, people like to add to the Bible. Nothing wrong with creeds and written doctrinal statements, but sometimes they're written and then they almost become on par with Scripture, but they're maybe at variance with Scripture in small areas. So the Word of God is the source of authority, and even Paul, as an apostle, understood that the source of his authoritative preaching was grounded in God's revelation to him. Really, really important. So what, is revel- what revelation is he wanting to deliver? Well, fundamentally, the gospel, which centers on Christ's victory over the curse of sin through his resurrection. Verse 1 says, who raised him from the dead? That's not all to the gospel, but that's core to the gospel. So in our church, lots of people, probably a few hundred, serve as teachers, preachers, instructors, life group leaders, Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders, and we, like, we love to develop and equip people to be competent teachers of God's word. But when we do that, we already have your curriculum for you. Here it is. You have to make up your own stuff. We preach from the word of God to the people of God, and we ask that God would take it and apply it and bless us. Why is this important? Well, because as was the case then, so is the case now. So many people love to monkey around with the gospel. They add to it. I'll give you a little idea in advance. So in Galatia, one of the problems were Christians and preachers that were coming out of Judaism or associated with Judaism were starting to question whether salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone was enough. It's like, well, maybe, maybe that circumcision right has to be carried forward. So maybe you have to be circumcised to be a Christian if you're a male, obviously. And Paul's like, no way. We cannot impose these old covenant rights on the new covenant community. Now we're adding to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, people have done all sorts of things, added all sorts of rules. You know, it's like to get baptized, you got to go through an 18-week discipleship class to prove yourself. Where is that in the Bible? So we, we want to make sure that we're continuing to bring clarity to the word of God. So some add to it, some subtract to it, some, some, some subtract from it. So the way that usually plays out is because we all get a little people pleaser going on inside of us. When we preach the gospel, we try to get as quickly as possible to love, grace, and mercy. And we sidestep or scoot around sin, judgment, and damnation. Because that sounds medieval, right? That sounds medieval. So the gospel can be, like grace, the more you understand you're a sinner, the more grace and mercy is actually a beautiful thing that just fuels your worship. But if you're just sort of adding Jesus to an already good life, eh, you become mediocre and nonchalant about your faith. So we have to preach the full gospel, the bad news and the good news. Others are bored. It's like, I've been a Christian for 40 years. I need something new. I go to church every, he essentially says the same thing. Well, be glad we're not living 900 years if that's your concern. But (laughs) the idea of being bored with the gospel should be foreign to every Christian. I've been a Christian for over 40 years, since 1979, and I don't get bored with the gospel. It fuels my worship. It, It humbles me continually. It reminds me of who truly is in charge. It's a beautiful message. Again, you don't need to come to church every week and hear something new. Most of us just need the same old story taught to us time and time and time again. This is our anchor. This is the the footings upon which we build our houses. So we got to get back to the word. And by the way, I'm a big fan of sharing your testimony. Tell your friends and neighbors about how the Lord rescued you and saved you. But know this, the gospel is not your testimony. It's not your story. It's Christ's story. You can talk about how it's impacted you. But if you're just like, I just like sharing my testimony, but you never really point them to Christ, they're getting a half gospel. They're getting the application of the gospel, but not the full gospel. So preach the full gospel of Jesus Christ, just like history. We've said it before. History is not my story. It's his story. The world centers on Christ, his redemption, his movement in our world. So know the source. Rather than centering it on us, this is verses three to five now, the gospel centers on the sacrifice of Christ, and the glory he is due as a result. The glory he is due. 
So the verse, the next verse says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this greeting identifies both the gift, which is grace, and the result, which is peace. The peace that we have, that the Bible says surpasses human understanding. This is a really wonderful gift from God in that when you understand that the source of your salvation is God's sovereign pleasure and grace, you can live at peace. Because all of the things that otherwise rattle our cages, rock our boats, and try to take us out, we know will ultimately be resolved, and many of them already have been resolved. We live in a world where not a lot of people are at peace. Do you notice that? There's some Christians that are never at peace either because they're not appropriating the gospel. It's like their their cages are—they're always stressed and anxious and depressed and in despair and you know, gasping for breath and just never being able to sleep well because they've lost sight of the gospel or many have not encountered the gospel now. I understand one of the things I, I don't like about preaching is that I can't cross every T and dot every I in 45 minutes, but I want to speak to this idea of peace for a moment in our culture. And one of the things I've noticed and you're aware of is that we have a whole industry that has been created by pharmaceutical companies to help you overcome your stress, your anxiety, your depression, and your despair. Now, I acknowledge that a person can sustain damage to their physical body and to their brain in particular that can really stir up and mess up your emotions for the rest of your life. I affirm that. You can be born with birth defects. Maybe in your former life you smoked and toked a little too much and some things aren't working properly anymore. Maybe you were in a, a car accident, you had a closed head injury. So I affirm that, that human beings can sustain physical damage and trauma to their bodies, which messes with your body chemistry. But that's very rare. We live in a godless world where people are told they came from nowhere, they have no real purpose, and they're going nowhere. And it's a dog-eat-dog world where they've experienced very little benevolence, very little love, very little mercy, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, poverty, war, All sorts of things destroy people. And because of that, we should expect that there's going to be a lot of depression. I mean, apart from Christ, it is a depressing world. A lot of despair, a lot of stress, a lot of chewing on the old fingernails. But the the thing of it is, is we've been told by the Darwinian establishment, which essentially says you're just a biotic being. That's all the world is concerned about. That's That's the consequence of Darwinian theory that you came from nowhere and you're going nowhere. You're just a biotic being. So this is the modern medical system. It's based on Darwinian theory, and it says you're just a biotic being. So if you have a symptom, depression, despair, anxiety, stress, we have a pill for you. We have an injection for you. And we've created a whole industry within which people who do not have physiological problems are being treated by a physician a physiological doctor, a doctor that specializes in the body, when in reality, the problem is they have a spiritual condition, a spiritual condition. And the spiritual condition is they they don't know their creator. They're not living according to their creator's laws and rules and principles. They've never experienced grace. They've never experienced mercy. They've never been told, you are made in the image and likeness of God and are precious to God, that you have a purpose, you have, a, you have meaning. There is a Savior who shed his blood for you. You can repent of your sins and become a, think, think about this, a son or daughter of the eternal king, even if you've been abandoned by your own parents. They're never told that. So they run to the physician, the physical doctor, instead of the soul doctor, which is ultimately Christ. And they continue to live their lives reliant upon chemicals to try to fix a problem that ultimately originates in the soul. But when you experience the gospel of Jesus Christ, assuming your issue isn't because of physical damage, you receive grace. And when you really understand what that is, that will necessarily and inevitably open the door for you to experience peace. 
That's the beauty of the gospel. Someone might say, well, where does that peace come from? Does it come from science? No, it's a peace that passes understanding. It's a divine gift. So you see people then that understand that and are appropriating the gospel who have experienced all sorts of trauma in life, all sorts of challenges, but they live lives with joy and peace and hope and perspective. We want, I want all of you to experience that, not just in heaven, but now. And God offers it through the gospel. The gospel of grace leads increasingly to peace. So you can look out around, you can look out at the world around you and you're like, yeah, this is a pretty nasty world. It is a nasty world. Always has been since we fell into sin. But it's a nasty world. But somehow, even though I'm bothered by it, and I'm seeking to bring about change and I'm trying to be engaged in justice issues and you know, trying to, trying to make a difference in the world, you can still sleep well at night because you know, guess who's still on his throne? Christ is still on his throne. Guess who's going to be here ruling the world long after we're gone? Christ. Guess who's going to hold the evildoer to account? Christ. Guess who's going to hold the person that has abused you to account? Christ. So we win because he wins. And this is the beauty that comes from the gospel, as sad as our world often is. There is no grace and there is no peace apart from God. Christianity alone preaches a gospel of grace. The rest of the world preaches a gospel of merit. Here's what you need to do if you want to become right with, name your God. So we have grace and peace uh, because of God, and you can observe that the spiritually lost sadly have the exact opposite. This, by the way, is why in the last two years, many people who otherwise would not be here have flooded into our church because they realized the world is a dangerous place. They didn't think that two years ago, but they realized it's a dangerous place. And so they've realized they need to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're super thankful for that, and we need it. I'm glad all this happened, frankly, because I've seen God change people's lives all over the place. So Jesus then steps into the world, and it says in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. It's like, Lord, what do you mean deliver us from the present evil age? I don't think you've done that yet. We're still kind of part of this world. So what's going on here? We'll talk about that. According to the will of our God, we believe in the sovereign, the absolute sovereignty of God over all of life. If God is not sovereign, guess, guess who he is no longer? He's no longer God. You can't be God and not be sovereign. It's an immutable attribute of God. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. So this is beautiful because this is doxological. It just attributes all the praise and the glory and the fame and the thanksgiving back to God. Through Christ, the text teaches us that we have been set free from this present age. So what that means, we're still here, but we are no longer in bondage and slavery to sin. We are his ambassadors. He went to the jail, opened the jail and forgave us and set us free and sacrificed his own son on our behalf. And now we have been set free from bondage and slavery to sin. So if if you understand biblical anthropology, you need to understand that we are worse than we think we are. We believe in the doctrine of total depravity. Meaning, by yourself, you are totally unable to impress God. Totally unable to do meritorious works. Will you do good works? Yes, but even those will be corrupted by sinful inclinations. Now, the devil is utterly depraved. Not only is he unable to do good, he has no interest in it, and he won't do it. We do good deeds, we just don't get any credit for it, so we call that total depravity. So you're, you're out on both counts. You're, you're born in sin, and then you have no capacity to do a single thing that impresses God. This is why one sin is enough to eternally exclude you from the kingdom of God. There's no cosmic scale, folks, like the Egyptians taught. Throw your good on one side and your bad on the other, and if you get more good than bad, you get into wherever. No. One sin is enough to eternally exclude us 
from the eternal kingdom. We were enslaved to sin. We were depraved. We were without hope. We were lost. We were enslaved to it. But that has been overcome through the righteousness of Christ. Christ has actually conquered our sin and died in our behalf. And yeah, we're not fully sanctified yet, but we are being progressively sanctified. And one day we will be glorified in the eternal kingdom. I want to emphasize this because I still hear Christians and it it echoes through my own mind at times too, making excuses for our own sin. Well, it's an addiction. I can't overcome it. I've tried, I can't. This is just my thorn in the flesh. I'll always be a liar, a cheat, a thief, whatever it might be. I'll always be that. No, you are no longer a slave to fear, a slave to sin. If you've been saved, you've been released from bondage to sin, and now you have the capacity by God's grace to become more like Jesus. Think of the resources you have. You have a completed canon of scripture. Hundreds of generations lived before there was ever a completed canon of scripture. What a beautiful blessing. We have more Bible translations, study Bibles and Bible tools and electronic Bibles in any generation in the history of the world. And still we have Christians that don't read their Bibles or read it very sparingly. Oh, they're concerned about their physical health. They're at the gym and they're eating every day. But they rob their souls of nutrition. And they wonder, why am I still tempted in so many areas? The word of God purifies us. Well, we're not slaves to sin. I was going to read a verse for you from Romans 8. I was going to read verse 15, but as I was looking at it in context, I'm like, I got to give you the whole section. This is so beautiful. And it's so freeing in verse 12 to 17. That's the section I want to read. This is, listen to what this says. This is speaking to Christians. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We used to be in debt to the flesh. Now we're in debt to Christ and the Spirit. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all are led by the Spirit of God, our sons of God. For you did not receive, this is in our salvation, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's natural. It's natural to be afraid, upset, depressed, in despair. You should be if you're not a Christian. You should be, and it's inevitable. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's a very personal way of referring to God as your father. It's the language, you've heard this before, I'm sure, of a child. You know what kids say before they say, hey, dad? Dada. Now, once they get a little older, they should stop. You know, my kids are about 18. My boys, when they were snuggling with me, no. Not. It's dad now, dude, okay? But dada, Abba. That's the, that's the sound that a dependent child makes when they're in the secure presence of their father. And as we're humbled, we realize how dependent we are, and we are literally his children, but the beautiful thing is we've been adopted. I've always been fascinated by adoption stories. I'm sure you have. It's just a fascinating aspect of a broken world that a child can lose their parents or be abandoned by their parents, and someone else takes that child and declares them to be their own. There's so much beauty in that. And I would encourage those of you that can to pursue adoption, to pursue adoption in a world where there's so many um, children that are being abused or have been neglected. But here we, we all have been adopted as sons and daughters of God by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And then the spirit within us. So the spirit of God actually indwells every born again Christian. We have been spiritually regenerated, born again. We used to use the word born again back in the 70s, and then it kind of went out of vogue because you were kind of like wacky and weird if you were a born again Christian. We're born again Christians. We're regenerate. We've been spiritually made new. We've been rebirthed. We've been made alive in Christ. So we're going to use biblical language. The spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. So we have a future to look forward to. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with him, which just kind of reminds us that the Christian life doesn't stop with your conversion. 
Followership is inevitably necessary as an expression of your faith. So that's where I said earlier, works don't save. We're, not, we're saved by grace alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. It inevitably and necessarily manifests itself in following in the footsteps of Christ, but Christ gets glorified for all that. So we were once in prison. Now we've been appointed as the king's ambassadors. If someone did something really bad to you, like murdered your family, and somehow by God's grace you forgave them, that would be impressive. But it'd be even more impressive if you appointed them to represent your business endeavors and your message in a world. That would be like, wow. That's what God's done. We've offended him, but we've been not only appointed as his adopted sons, but we've also been appointed as his ambassadors. So this is central to the gospel. Now, what happens if I fall into the trap of false teaching? Well, in verses six through eight, we have the curse of false teaching. I've already read verse eight for you. I'll read it again, but it's set in a context, verses six, seven, eight, and nine. Paul goes out, he establishes these early churches. Galatia, as I mentioned, is a province where there's multiple churches and he'd gone in and planted churches and they'd grown. And then a problem happened. By the way, have you ever thought to yourself, man, wouldn't it be nice to be like the early church again? A lot of people think that. The early church, they have this idyllic view, the early church. It was so perfect and pure and everybody was giving their possessions away and preaching the gospel. There were a lot of problems in the early church too. This is why we got all these letters correcting their behavior. And in the early church, in the first century, while Paul was still walking the earth, they fell into the trap of a false gospel. He says, I'm astonished. You are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of God and are turning to a different gospel. Again, largely as a result of the nasty influences of what they call the Judaizers, trying to Judaize Christianity. So let's not, let's not assume, folks, that there was a time in history when people had it so much better. There was a time in history where the church was perfect and pure. Every church is being purified, ongoing present, continuous sense. Every church is being purified. And I love the fact that Paul is blunt. He doesn't just sit back and let it go by. He doesn't think to himself, well, you know, I don't want people to call me judgmental. So I'm just going to kind of circle in. I'm going to do so wide of a circle before I get to the point that they're not even going to understand what I'm talking about by the time we're done. He's just like, here's a problem. And I will say this, in your ministry as a Christian, when you preach the gospel and seek to live out your faith, don't be surprised time and time again that people try to shut you down, not by wrestling with the substance of what you're saying, but by saying, you're judgmental, you're prideful, you're arrogant. It's like, let's deal with that another time. This is the issue. But it's, it's, it's a diversion tactic, right? And it also flows from a false understanding of what being a preacher even is because part of preaching is confronting and correcting, which we see even in Christ's own ministry. Verse seven, you, you've turned to another gospel. Then he says, not that there is another one, it's fake anyway, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, this is verse eight, mentioned it to you already, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema. And then again, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema. Let him be eternally damned. Do we use that word in church? It's a biblical word and it's a biblical concept. So this is pretty important here. This is two anathemas pronounced upon those that would twist the gospel. And guess who God gives a break to? No one. He doesn't give a break to an apostle or an angel. There are no passes when it comes to false teaching. I would encourage you to pay attention very carefully to what you're being taught. I could be leading you astray. I've actually thought it would be fun to preach a sermon that I know is completely wrong and false and to see how many people notice. That'd be kind of fun. This is it. No. <laughs> but pay attention because I could be an error could be my, my ignorance, some other reason. So pay attention. None of us are going to be perfect, but spirit bears witness to spirit. 
and we have the word of God to justify and validate, that we want to make sure that we are clearly understanding and preaching the gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, fundamental to the gospel is the lordship of Christ and God over all. God was before we were. God has always been and always will be. And God, by his grace, created us. And you know, in the Garden of Eden and many times subsequent, we've rebelled against him. And God cannot tolerate any speck or fleck of sin. So he has to judge. His holiness demands it. His righteousness demands it. He cannot let us off the hook. He can't, we don't get work hours for it. You got to work it off. You got to pay a fine. No. We are messed up to the core and we are deserving of eternal damnation because of our sin. But the problem is we compare ourselves. We're like, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not a rapist. I'm not a serial killer. So come on, like, look at these people out there that are screwing up our world. I'm not one of them. One sin is enough to eternally exclude you from God's kingdom. That's the bad news. That's the bad news. And you need to admit it and acknowledge it. I mean, you know it. You just, some of us are blinded to it. We're all blinded to it apart from God's regenerative work. So that's the bad news. The good news is, is God, being rich in grace and mercy, sent the eternal son, fully God, fully man, to die in our place, to go into a borrowed tomb and be resurrected three days later, conquering death, sin, hell, Satan, and then to freely offer a message of redemption and spiritual rebirth through Christ. So we put our faith in Christ. We believe, we trust, we rest. We embrace him and we repent of our sins and we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is enough to save us and God makes us new. And we have not only a mission now, but we have a marvelous future to look forward to. This is core to the gospel. So why the temptation to distort it? This is kind of where I want to take us finally. Why, why is it that in a world where we have the word of God, it's available everywhere, it's very clear. Why is it that so often the gospel gets played around with? Well, there's many reasons, but you know what one of the fundamental ones is? A desire to please other people. I can't say that they're not going to like me. I can't say that my job's going to be put on the line. I can't say that I might lose a relationship. My kid might not talk to me anymore. It's people-pleasing. This is fundamental. Don't be a people-pleaser. Verse 10 says, that he identifies this. For now I am seeking the approval, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Who do I want to ultimately please? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man... I would not be a servant of Christ. It's an either or. It's not a little of this and a little of that. When we fall into the trap of seeking the approval of people and therefore compromising our faith, in that moment, we cease to be Christ's ambassador and servant. We become his enemy. Not positionally, if we're saved, but functionally, we become his enemy. We're not, a servant of, we're not serving him. We're not a servant of Christ right now. If you live your whole life like that, you've got cause to call into question the validity of your salvation. So this is the either or. When I was a youth pastor for about eight years, which was a real fun time of my life, one of the things you know you have to deal with with teenagers is peer pressure. They're kind of transitioning from childhood to adulthood. There's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of hormones going on. And they're, they're trying to figure out how to live, how to act, how to speak, how to you know, respond to members of the opposite sex and whatnot. And they often look to their peers. They, they like to be in groups. They look to their peers. And the, if they have bad peers, the peers will pressure them to do that which is unrighteous. But you know what? I don't think a lot of people ever really outgrow that. Because even adults, they're more sophisticated about it, but adults we're all a little bit concerned about what other people think, are we not? And again, it's more sophisticated. It's not as childlike, but we have to be careful to assess our motives. So I've thought about this a lot as a preacher. Obviously, here I am. You're listening to the sound of my voice. I'm trying to instruct you in the word of God. But I like to ask myself a question. Do I need to do this? Is this my identity? Do I, do I need you to come back next week in order to tell you the truth this week? 
And God forbid, and God help me, if I preach in such a way that is fundamentally concerned about what you think. Because then you start throwing out the stuff that's a little harder. You start concerning yourself with who's coming, what the money flows like, whether people like you, what they're going to say afterwards. And literally, we have to find ourselves to a place where like, I don't care. I love you. I care for you. But I don't really care what you think if I'm honestly believing that I'm preaching the truth. And you need to do the same with me. Because it's so tempting to, and this is why a lot of people are down on the big church. You know that? You notice that? It's like mega churches, big churches, they're all compromised. Well, it's true. A lot of them are. They've grown through compromise. I think we're proving that otherwise can be true. So there's a lot of small churches that compromise too. Just nobody pays attention to them. But we never want to grow by compromise. We want to grow by truth. Yes, living it out, it's not all about do this, do that, believe this, believe that. But this, this notion of pleasing people is poisonous to so many churches and pastors, even that I know. I mean, we know in the last couple of years, there were some, many churches that actually agreed with our stance. But they would say, but we can't afford it. We can't lose our insurance. We can't lose our charitable status. We lost our insurance. We just kept going. So we cannot afford to compromise. As soon as we compromise in here, the world hears, and that's when they start piling on that you are, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're, you are, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. You don't even believe it. You'll buckle at the first, first sign of pressure. And unfortunately, many of those allegations are right. So we need to weed this out, not only for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of our community and further uh, generations. If we seek man's approval, we lose God's approval. If we seek God's approval, we may lose some men's approval, but more will be saved and ultimately God will be, the glorified. God will be glorified, which is our ultimate mission. The mission of God is the glory of God, not your salvation. He saves you to glorify himself, but the mission of God is the glory of God. That's what makes the church vertical. So a few practical things. Let's suppose that you're preaching the truth and you're being faithful and you're getting things thrown at you like, well, you're, you're not like Jesus. You're, you're harsh. You're arrogant. The majority don't agree with you. And you're like, oh, maybe that's true. I don't want to be thought of as arrogant. I don't want to be thought of as harsh. Maybe if we're so... If we're in the minority, maybe we're wrong, right? These things serve to push you off base. And a lot of people, when you confront them with truth, they attack something like that. And you have to have your ears up and be aware of it. Someone said to me, I confronted someone recently. They're like, that's not Jesus. What do you mean by that? Jesus didn't confront people? What Jesus are you reading about? He seemed kind of confrontational in the temple, didn't he? So it's, it's a distraction. It's smoke and mirrors. So in order to not fall into the trap of pleasing people, some things to be aware of. Many people are hindered in preaching the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, just because in general they're terrified of conflict. Just terrified of conflict. I don't like conflict. Well, you got to be weird if you like conflict. I don't like conflict either. But it's part of our call, and it's a temporary assignment. Right? Eventually, we're not going to have to deal with that sort of thing. But conflict is a blessing. There's a proverb that says, Listen to this. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Just always kissing you, kissing up to you, complimenting you, never confronting, never challenging. That's bad parenting. That's bad husbanding, wifing. That's bad gospel preaching. We're not doing that all the time, but sometimes we have to wound one another in order to correct one another. And that's a blessing. We're unsure about the gospel. Well, I, I get that. If you're a brand new Christian, you might need to study a little bit more and just bring some clarity to that. But if, you're, if you've been saved for 10, 15, 20 years, you should know the gospel. Shouldn't be, there shouldn't be no ambiguity about that. So make sure you're studying the gospel. Some are worried about being verbally beaten down. It's like, well, you're a debater. You can debate. You can speak publicly. You're fast on your feet verbally, and I'm not. So I'm just not going to say anything. 
Like there's all kinds of personalities in the world that require other personalities to move in their lives. Not everybody needs me in their life, believe me. God will put unique people with unique personalities in your life and he will use your strengths and your weaknesses just like he uses my many weaknesses to bless other people. So look for those opportunities that he gives you. And then finally, don't worry about the financial consequences of your gospel preaching and ministry. Ministry. Now we need to be, there's a principle in scripture, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't take that which is valuable and throw it to someone that you know is gonna destroy it. So there needs to be some discernment. When you're preaching and teaching, sometimes you meet people, it's very clear you're wasting your time. Jesus would go into towns and then he'd shake the dust off his feet and leave. He didn't just stay and say, well, I'm Jesus, so I can, you know, I should just stick around. He was demonstrating that some fields are not ripe for harvest. So not every ministry opportunity means you're called to meet it. Hugely, by the way, that's hugely freeing if you love to serve. Just because there's an opportunity doesn't mean you're the person to meet it. You don't have to do everything. So there are some people you, you, you want to be long-suffering with them, but they're, they're, they're spiritually dead. They're completely disinterested. There's no lights going on. And you're actually wasting your time because there's other fields that are ripe to harvest. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't persevere and push. So you don't want to unnecessarily throw away your livelihood, your job, your resources, if you know 100% people are going to just eat it up and destroy it and trample it. But at the same time, your willingness to suffer for Christ is a testimony of faithfulness to your fellow believer. Do you think I got charged and fined because I thought I was going to win in court? No. So many people, oh, you're going to win in court. You're going to win. I don't think that. I don't think that at all. I'm not assuming I'm going to win. I'm not going to like run the numbers and say, well, I'm going to get fined and charged only if I win. You do the right thing. And other people are blessed by that. And God is responsible for whatever consequences he permits, permits the state to dole out. And if we look back on history, remember all the people that were burned at the stake? They actually were burned at the stake. It wasn't like in the last minute, whoop, the fire went out and they jumped off and ran around free. But we admire them, not because they won in this world, not because they won by human standards, but they won. They won. So when we, we need to be willing to, to lose, but at the same time, we can't allow fear of losing, fear of loss, fear of loss of employment to cause us to compromise the truth of the gospel. Well, brothers and sisters, software needs upgrades regularly. And if you have a house, eventually it's going to need to be renovated. But there's no gospel 2.0 we're waiting for. The gospel doesn't need an upgrade, doesn't need renovation. We don't need to mess around with it. We have the gospel, which is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So just do this. Know it, teach it, and defend it. And most importantly, live it out. To do otherwise is to rob God of glory and potentially bring divine judgment upon you. So be blessed by these words. Let's be faithful to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's pray that he give us the strength to that end.